What is Metalhead Journeys? It's exactly how it sounds. It's a journey through the world of metal by a couple of metalheads. Are you thinking of getting into metal? Where do you begin? There are so many different subgenres. What bands are good? What albums are good? We'll provide answers to all of those questions. We'll handle all the research and do all the dirty work by listening to the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you don't have to. Classic albums, new albums, bands no one's ever heard of. Get ready as we'll applaud and criticize with the same passion. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. Joining me, as always, the doctor of podcasting, L. Ray Sexton. What's going on, Casey? Not much, buddy. How are you? Uh, we're having a fine morning here. We are. This is an early episode. We both have new studios set up, yeah. and we are looking fresh. Oh, yeah. Tell us about today's episode, buddy. So today we talk about some wrestling with Dr. Tom. And, you know, at one point we start talking about promos. And I have to tell you that anytime I think about having to do a promo, I immediately go into macho man, Randy Savage mode. It's like, oh, yeah, we got a great podcast for you today. You know, immediately that's right where it goes. Right to macho man. (laughs) He was a hell of a promo guy. That's for sure. All right, let's get into the interview with Dr. Tom right after these quick announcements. We are a part of the Deluxe Edition Network. You can find all the other great shows over at deluxeeditionnetwork.com. And the podcasts of the month this month are Metalhead Journeys and The MILF and Me. You can find them both anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are also on Instagram at Deluxe Edition Pod. Find out what Ray is doing over there. And you can find all of our other episodes over at deluxeedition.show. Also, you know, my nice new banner here behind me. Mm. And if you would like to support the show, you could head over to patreon.com slash deluxe edition pod. Or you could buy a t-shirt at whatamaneuver.net slash collections slash deluxe dash edition. And Ray, what do you got going on? Well, you can head over to the 10 Cent Beer Night podcast over at Public and get yourself some bootleg merch. Thinking about adding some new stuff all the time. I think right now, though, I think our hot seller, laptop covers. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> But we do have them. They're there if you want one. (laughs) 
I can't believe I said that. I'm not that gullible. <laughs> Our hot seller is the tank top, the women's yes. Razorback tank top. Uh, that is correct. Summer is almost over, but that does not mean you can't wear your tank top to go to bed. Well, if you wear it out in public, it looks a lot nicer this time of the year because it's a little cooler out. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Ray? Uh, nah, not not something that I'm ready to to let out of the bag yet. Okay, I don't something I don't even know about. That is correct. We're gonna have a little conversation about some new stuff. Great. All right. Well, before then, here is the Doctor of Desire, Doctor Tom Pritchard. Ray, the Doctor is in. Yes. Amen. Nice, nice shirt, Casey. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, I got the uh I got the uh red JPWA shirt also I ordered. Oh nice. Yeah. And I uh while we're uh, plugging away, I got the book here also. Awesome. Where, where can people find this? I got it out of the back of your trunk. Oh, that is true. That's right. Well they can get that at jpwrestlingacademy.com. Awesome. That's right there. Yeah. Yeah, great book, man. So uh, let's let's start back at the beginning of your career, Tom. Uh, you grew up in West Texas, El Paso, right? Yeah, born in West Texas. Uh, lived there until the time I was, uh, I think, nine years old. I turned ten when I went to Houston, and uh, I watched all the all the all the great wrestlers from West Texas, like the Funks, Thunderbolt Patterson. Uh, oh my God, Lord Patrick Patterson was was there when. When I was a kid, too, he was he was a lord back then. He wasn't uh, Canadian. Really? Something else. Yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, I saw all the uh, the top names come through West Texas and moved to Houston, Texas, and saw the guys like Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel and Gary Hart, uh, the spoiler. Um, my God. It was I just – I didn't realize it at the time. I realized I was watching great wrestlers, but I didn't realize these were the top guys in the business. So, uh, I've been watching, uh, yeah, ever since I can remember. So, I know you broke into the business by taking pictures, right? When you were like 12 and 13 years old. Yeah, that was uh, just a way to get to ringside, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, your brother Ken introduced you to those guys, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, we all know your brother Bruce. He was uh, brother love. Um, what did, was your brother Ken involved in the business at all? No, no. All he was was he, uh, what he did Ken was in the Air Force, and he went to Vietnam. Then we came back. Uh, he was staying with us for a while. And he called Paul Bosch in Houston. I was walking home from uh, school one day, and he he made a phone call on his own for, on behalf of me. I didn't ask him to do it, but he did it. And I think it was that uh, relationship, being a veteran. You know, Paul was in the in, uh, I think it was the Army. And Ken was in the Air Force. I think being a veteran and being in the service had that connection for both of them. And he said, you know, my little brother just loves wrestling and he wants to be a part of it. So uh, just give him a chance. That's all I'm asking. And then I had these press passes that Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby had sent me from Wrestling News. And uh, I always carried them in my wallet. So when Ken picked me up, I had them. Went down to the wrestling office and – Showed Paul the press passes. There was a big match coming up between Briscoe and Wahoo. And something happened. It got canceled. Or my, my 
film didn't take, and they had to come back with it a couple weeks later. I got to do it again. But Ken wasn't in the business. He just knew that I wanted it, and he was, uh, you know, wanted to do something for his little brother. So walk us through, like, you taking pictures. I know you got uh, pictures published in published, published yeah. in Japanese magazines. Like how how at twelve and thirteen how how did you go about doing that? Like how did you have to did you have to get them printed out and then send them yeah. away? Like how how did yeah, that? Well, well, what happened now? Back I mean, in... now you just post things to the internet. You know, it's right. See, back in the seventies, the world was a whole different place, man. And uh, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have a lot of stuff. We didn't have mobile uh, cell phones. You know, you had to go outside and play, or you had to you had to find something to keep yourself occupied. And wrestling was my obsession. And in the wrestling magazines, they had what what we call pen pals and, and correspondence and things like that. And I made a connection with a guy named Koichi Yashizawa. He just passed away. I don't know if you saw any of that stuff, but Koichi Yashizawa was. Uh, uh, a Japanese writer, photographer for Gong Magazine. And I wrote him a letter, you know, back then again, we didn't have email and all that stuff. So I had to write a letter, man. I typed it out and made, made it look all professional as I could for a 12-year-old kid. And uh, I just got a new camera. And uh, I told him I'm going to get to be ringside for Wahoo versus uh, Briscoe. And he said, oh, my God, we'd love to have some some pictures for our magazine. So, uh, and, and Wrestling News did the same thing. You know, printed out the, the copies, sent it to us, and we'll pay you. So, I don't remember what I got paid by uh, Gong Magazine, but I think Wrestling News paid me like 50 bucks for a story and a couple pictures. But that was the way we did it back then. You had to, you had to actually write a letter, send it off, wait for a response, and uh, that that was how the process was done. And in the meantime, I'm making contacts and I'm making connections at the matches. You know, when I'm at ringside, some of the guys ask for their pictures, and uh, so I would bring copies for the guys and uh, pass them out as well. So that was my way in. I didn't want to be a photographer. I want to be a wrestler. And, but that was just a, that was a, that was a, the next step, you know, to try and get in there, at least get a ringside, study, watch. And then I worked my way up to being a second, being a referee. And finally, I wound up uh, sitting next to Paul Bosch uh, as his assistant every Friday night and working at the wrestling office during the summer at uh, 1919 Caroline at the corner of Pierce. And I can remember that to this day because that's how Paul. Always started his programs and always sold his programs. You know, you can get tickets at 1919 Caroline at the corner of Pierce. We're open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. <clears throat> so, I mean, that was my way in. That was, that was what you had to do. You had to make connections. You had to know somebody who knew somebody who might know a lady who knows a guy who used to work for a guy who, who pressed this guy's pants, you know, and all this other stuff, man. So, it was just, it was me doing it uh, the best way I knew it at 12 years old. So, like, years later, when you met these, because you went to Japan then later, wrestled in Japan, um, did they, like, they had no idea that you were 12 and 13 when you were sending these pictures, right? Like, No, no, but at the same time, you have to remember this. You had Eddie Gilbert, you had Paul Heyman, Jim Cornette, myself, uh, and a few other guys, you know, who who were young, but we didn't know, they didn't know how young. We didn't, and we don't think any of us told them how young we were. We were just... 
in love with wrestling, in love with the business, and uh, uh, the wrestling magazines weren't so sophisticated back then. Not that they're sophisticated now, but but you know, there's a lot of hope hokey stuff in the magazines and all, and all that stuff. And we just wanted to be a part of it. They didn't know how old we were. They didn't care as long as they had content, I think. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's really cool, man. So like, when did, uh, like, when did you find out that, you know, wrestling was a work like, uh, you know, 12, 12 and 13, you're taking pictures. You still think, think that this is, I mean, and back then it kind of was like real. I mean, they were, they were really, you know, hitting each other a lot of the times, right? I mean, well, well, yeah, yeah, but you know, when I when I moved to uh, Houston, you know, I'm leaving my own wrestlers. I'm leaving my home base. I'm leaving the guys that I knew, the Funks. Dory Junior. just won the NWA Championship. Dory Funk Junior. Um, Harley Race was in the territory. Grizzly Smith was in the territory, and I'm leaving all this stuff to go to Houston. And a friend of my mom's is going to send me all the newspaper clippings and the cards and, and let me know what's going on because, you know, she knew how much I wanted to stay in touch with what's going on in El Paso. And, and what really smartened me up, I was starting to figure it out, but what really smartened me up was one day uh, before we left, you know, Harley Race had come to town and come in the territory. And he's running rough shot over everybody. And Grizz, Grizzly had this, uh, Grizzly Smith, Jake's dad, had this gimmick to where you could punch him in the stomach, you could jump on his stomach, you couldn't hurt him. It was like the Houdini gimmick. And uh, he got out one day on the interview and says, I don't even care if you come off your 15, uh, a 15 foot ladder. I don't care how, how big you want to come up to the Empire State Building and jump on me. You can't hurt me. So the next week, of course, Harley Race comes out and says, hey, I got my ladder here. Where are you, you coward? And it's one thing you don't do is call somebody a coward in wrestling because, by God, those are fighting words. But anyway, so Grizz came out, and uh, they go to a break. They come back. The ladder is set up. You got two guys holding the ladder in the ring. Um, Harley climbs up to the very top of the ladder. He's in the ring lights, and he's, he's touching the lights, and it looks really dramatic. And uh, Nick Roberts, Baby Doll's dad, I'll never forget this. He says, ladies and gentlemen, we need complete silence so Mr. Race can concentrate. Harley gets on that ladder, and he jumps down with his knee right across Grizz's neck. Grizz's tongue is hanging out. Nick Roberts goes nuts. He goes, ladies and gentlemen, oh, my God, what's happened? We need an ambulance. Not an ambulance, but an ambulance. And I'll never forget the way he said that. They open up the the uh, door to the TV studio. The ambulance came in, loaded Grizz on the uh, gurney, took him took him to the hospital. Now we have to leave two weeks later, and th- this is all now in limbo. Grizzly Smith may never wrestle again. He's injured. He might have crushed his windpipe. He, he may need to be in the hospital forever, and all this stuff. So we moved to Houston, and again I. Now we're, we're introduced to guys like Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel and Jose Lothario and, and all this, this another crew of wrestlers. And about a month goes by, actually about two months go by, and I'm getting the results and, and all the newspaper clippings from El Paso saying Grizzly Smith is still touch and go. We don't know if his career has ended. We don't know, but we'll have more news maybe next week. Well, the very same time I get this letter, 
in Houston. Paul Bosch is announcing on TV. He says, ladies and gentlemen, returning to get revenge on Johnny Valentine for coming off the second rope with his bionic elbow is Grizzly Smith. They did the same angle in El Paso as they did in Houston. And uh, I got to tell Grizz and Harley both about that later on in life, how they smartened me up. And Grizz says, yeah, I had a six-week tour to Japan. So, and nobody was finding out stuff back then, man. Again, you had to either write a letter or you had a pen pal or call somebody on the phone. And they they didn't care that much about it back then because it was localized regional wrestling. So Grizz had a six-week tour. They injured him. He came out, went out, came back. They did the return matches and all that stuff. So that's when I really figured out, ha, there's something to this more than meets the eye. And that's when I really started. I mean, I was already trying to figure out how it, how it worked and how it went. But that's that, that was when I really wanted to find out just exactly how these guys did what they did. And it, it, it intrigued me even more. It didn't discourage me. It, it, it encouraged me to be able to watch these guys where, you're right, they would actually make contact but they would make it look, to me as a kid, you know, look more real. And there was some stuff I saw that went, ah, I don't know about that. And I saw some guys who were horrible in the ring. And uh, I thought, how in the world are they doing this? Because it doesn't look that good. And then you watch a guy like a Jack Briscoe or, or a Dory Funk Jr. And they had the legitimacy uh, dialed in to where they wanted to be. Like how- how how much of the history of wrestling do you know like when did when did professional wrestling become like a work like because amateur wrestling like the real wrestling it's called amateur wrestling and then pro wrestling is a work well there's a book out it's been out for years by marcus griffin called the fall guys and it explains how it works but i think my opinion and the longer i go on and the longer i live I, i i Abdullah the Butcher told me this one time. He says, once you get in this business, you're going to think everything is a work. And everything is a work. (laughs) Everything is a work, man. You can tell me no, but I know different. Because you you look at the way things are set up. And uh, I think professional wrestling especially has been a work since day one. They figured it out, if nothing else. They figured out it's a lot easier. You know, they're going out there working four or five-hour matches. One match would go five hours. And that was when Toots Mott, Billy Sandell, and Strangler Lewis came in, and they said, no, we got to change this to some uh, – they called it Western Slam Bang Wrestling, I think it was. <clears throat> I haven't read the book in a while. But the Fall Guys explains how it works – the, the carny, the kayfabe, and coming from the carnivals especially, they manipulated everything, man. You know, even even the gladiators, uh, you know, who fed the Christians to the lions back then, that 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 to me I think is even a work, you know? Because how, how can you feed or how can you do all this stuff and come back the next day? Right. You know, if, if we were doing all this stuff for real to each other, we wouldn't be able to walk the next day. We wouldn't be able to walk that night. Right. So I, I, I just, I just figured out, uh, uh, that, that once someone organized an event, you know, they had somebody come in, um, uh, in the town, like a stranger in the town and kind of get to know the people. And then wrestling would come to town and somebody would bet on the local guy to, to beat the guy in the ring. And the people, 
who are organizing this aren't in, in business to lose money. So they want to make sure they protect their investment the best way to do it. Not the most honest way to do it, but the best way to do it is to make sure you have your investment protected and make sure it goes over. Yeah. There have been double crosses throughout the years, but uh, I just think since day one, there was something to this. Yeah. Going back to something you said there, um, your dad, I heard you say in interviews, your dad would say, you know, how can somebody get punched in the face 10 times and still come back? There's not a mark on them. Yeah, there's not a mark on them. There, if, if you, you know, that's, that's what's missing uh, a lot, not just in wrestling, but a lot of things. You, but wrestling especially, you, you have to sell what's happening to you for people to register. Although today's culture says otherwise, because you have AEW, you have NXT, you have some of this stuff that the guys are doing moves and people are popping for them. And they're, they're really interested in seeing the moves. They're not interested in seeing the selling and the drama and the storytelling as much. Although when you had the bloodline storytelling, that was pretty intriguing and they, they, they hit on something there, but if you hit somebody one time in, in MMA, they're immediately going to come up with a shiner. Black eye, you're going to split somebody open. In wrestling, not so much. If you hit the guy five times in a row, right in the face, and there's not a mark on him. He doesn't break his nose, doesn't bust his eye open. So how does that make sense? I mean, I, I haven't been in a lot of fights in my life. I've been in maybe three real fights, and that was as a kid. And, you know, I remember getting hit in the eye, and I, and I got a black eye. I thought, well, that, that makes perfect sense now. But I don't want to get hit in the eye every night. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So when you got it, when you finally got into the business, did your dad, was your dad like, I told you so? Or did you, did you smile? No, your dad no, no, he, he, uh, <clears throat> he knew, but he didn't say I told you so. He, he was just happy that I got to do something I wanted to do. Nice. Very yeah. cool. So before you started to train in wrestling, did you ever play any sports growing up at all? I played, played football. Football? Yeah. And I, I know you're, you're a black belt in karate also, right? Did karate. Did karate, judo and karate, yeah. Uh, met my karate instructor at 10 years old. And uh, to this day, he's one of the few people I've known that long. So did you ever, you never really incorporated any of the karate stuff into the, into your wrestling. Did you, I saw one of your matches, you did like a, a back heel kick, like a spinning back heel kick as the finish. Yeah. And, and I was only doing judo and karate because there wasn't any wrestling to be had. So, but our, our my instructor, Bill Gray used to take uh, Bruce and me and some other kids to demonstrations and we would do things like that. But but I didn't want to be the karate guy in wrestling. I wore my gi top a couple times and my belt a couple times. But, I mean, it was just more for, uh, I guess, the look. that I didn't want to be Chris Adams. I saw Chris Adams in Zaguri, uh when he came to California because I'd never seen that before. You catch the foot, and then you come up with the right foot. And that was kind of new at the time, at least in the States. And, uh, but no, I really didn't want to be the karate guy in wrestling. I didn't want to be the, the, like, uh, a Van Dam, you know, because Van Dam was a hell of a lot better than I ever was doing those kicks. Yeah. So I, I, you always talk about getting stretched by the Iron Sheik. Was that the, was that the very first time that you were in the, in the wrestling ring? That was, yeah, that was the first time, uh, it wasn't the first time I'd ever taken a bump. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, that was with 
judo taught me and uh, uh, karate taught me how to take kicks and, and things like that. But, but yeah, that was the first time in the ring and um, I was ready. They were going to have to kill me. They were going to have to literally beat the hell out of me to get me to go away. Cause I wasn't going away. And, and Cosro did, he pretty much stretched me and, and let me know it wasn't what I thought it was. Although it was in the end, it really was what I thought it was. But he was going to show me that, uh, you know, he's a big, tough Iranian guy and, and no young punk, 165 pounds soaking wet, you know, going to show him otherwise. Well, he, the Sheik was, I mean, as as legit as they come, right? He was. Yeah, he was he was legit as they come. He was an Olympic. Uh, I, I don't think it was alternate. But he was an Olympic wrestler from from uh, Iran, and he was the real deal. And he was tough. <laughs> so, uh, was that in was that in Los Angeles or where was that? At? How did what took you to well, Los that, Angeles then? Well, the, the the Sheik was in Houston when I was working in the wrestling office uh, okay. during during the summertime. Then Los Angeles originally I was supposed to go directly to Portland, Oregon, and. Uh, I think the week before I'm getting ready to leave, uh, Gary Hart tells me I'm going to Los Angeles. And I didn't know how it worked back then. I just thought they'd talk between each other and everybody knew what I was going to do. I was going to go to LA. And I said, but Gary, I'm supposed to go to Portland. He says, you'll go there after, after LA, you'll be there two weeks. And then you go to Portland. So I get to LA for a two week stay. And, uh, I see how business is. And I, again, I'm, I'm, I knew the business, but I didn't know the business because I wasn't in it. I didn't understand that, you know, it was up to me to make sure I got to Oregon. It was up to me to make sure these guys knew what was going on. It was up to me. I thought these guys already knew, but I asked Chavo, Chavo Guerrero was a booker. Uh, Chavo Guerrero senior was a booker in LA in 1980. And when I asked him about going to Oregon, he goes, oh, no, 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 you're staying here, man. So, okay, great. Everybody knows it. You know, I figured he'd get on the phone and tell him, no, 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 he's, he's going to stay with us. That wasn't it. But uh, that that was how it, how it happened. Gary Hart just came and said, hey, uh, you're going to L.A. for two weeks, and then you go to Portland. But I wound up staying in L.A. for a year. And the reason I stayed there, uh, they had Japanese connections. And that's one of the things I really want to do is go to Japan. I worked with Fujinami in, in the Olympic and I got a tour to Japan out of that. So that was, that was kind of cool. So did, did you burn bridges then in Portland by not showing up or like, well, when I, I finally went to Portland uh, in 1985 and Don Owen brought it to my attention. Cause I remember Paul Bosch calling me telling me he's got this kid going to come up here and see me in 1980. And then four years later you show up. <laughs> So yeah, I because I think they were planning. They had a they had me figured in somehow in Oregon. So back then, like now, everybody knows. Well, for the most part, like WWE, they do they produce they have producers for the matches. So back then, when you when you go into the locker room, like how did it work? Was was there a, a sheet on the wall where it said you know Tom Pritchard versus, and then it had the the winner at the end, and then did you? Did you right. guys get to talk? Because there was a there were back then. I mean, kayfabe was there were two separate locker rooms, right? Like the right, heels right. and the baby faces. So, how did you talk about the match, or, or was was it just done in the ring? Well, for the most part, there were, there were two locker rooms. Sometimes 
Uh, there was one locker room, which is always good. But even the veterans back then didn't want to go over the matches. And uh, as a green kid, you know, I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do. And uh, my first match in, in Houston was against Les Thornton, who uh, was just getting ready to be the world junior heavyweight champion for the NWA. And they had me go 15 minutes through with him, 15 minutes Broadway, you know, a draw. And I'm nervous. I'm blown up unless talks with an English accent, which is hard to understand regularly, but now I'm nervous. I'm amped up and I can't understand anything. The crowd's yelling. And so I just screwed that match up. But usually when I walked into a locker room or walked into a new territory, it, they had one booker that had the lineup on the, on the wall, tell you who you're working with. You'd find the booker. You'd say, oh, yeah, uh, he's going over with a small package. Figure it out. And that was it. And and you go out there, and they knew I was green, but uh, the guys who helped, helped, and the guys who didn't, didn't, because they didn't like young guys in their business. You know, this young punk coming in and taking my spot, I'll show him. You know, so uh, that was how it was. Didn't have producers or agents. You had one guy. And it was either the promoter or two guys to be the promoter and the booker. And uh, they just tell you, it was pretty simple. You know, you were going to sell a hole. You weren't doing a lot of high flying back then. Jimmy Snuka, when he came to Texas, did the splash off the top rope. And that was incredible. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. So it was a different style, a different culture, a different, uh, different time and place for sure. Um, I skipped over Mark Lewan. Uh, talk about him a little bit. Mark Lewin? Lewin, Mark Lewin, yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I started uh, training in the gym with Mark. I saw Mark in the gym one night, and he, he knew me, recognized me from Paul's assistant. And so he says, uh, yeah, man, why don't you come pick me up? We'll train together. Great. I'm going to train with Mark Lewin. It looks like a million bucks. He's... Here's another in. Here's another connection. So I, I used to go over to Mark's apartment. And he had, to, and here's the thing I didn't understand. Here was Mark Lewin, who had been a uh, top guy since he was 16 years old. He was a big guy. He was a matinee idol. He was a heartthrob in wrestling in the 50s and 60s. And um, now I'm getting to work out with him. I'm getting to talk with him and get to see how the lifestyle is, and uh, uh, I learned a lot from Mark. I really did. I heard you say in another interview that you realize now, as an older guy, that you like why he never worked outside of that territory. So, right, but well, you didn't really go into it. So, why? Why is that? Well, well, Mark had uh, his way of doing things, and Mark could be a very charming guy, uh, could be a great guy. But then I started hearing the stories about um, Mark wanting to do things his way and did things his way even when he was asked and or told not to. Uh, you know, he and Bruiser Brody, I think it was, had a match in San Antonio. And they were both leaving to go to another uh, Texas promotion that was going to run San Antonio. So they went out to kill the, kill the house. 
None of them sold. Neither one of them sold, and they sat down in the middle of the ring and just tried to kill the town. You know, that that's one example. Um, but Mark was was a free spirit. Let me say it like that. He did things the way he wanted to do them, and you could either do them with him or, or without him. But if you're going to do them without him, then he doesn't want you around. So that, that, that was my impression. Uh, and as a kid, uh, you want to try this? <laughs> of course. You want to try this? Well, sure. You know what I mean? And it, for me, it worked out at at that time because it really did. Without Mark Lewin, I don't know that I would have got in as good a shape as I did when I was uh, uh, starting out at 18, 19, 20 years old. But uh, Mark just was one of those guys who figured if you didn't want to do it his way, you'd find somebody who would. So who taught you how to – because, like, when I going back and watching some of your, your matches, I mean, you really – Talk about selling. Like you really know how to sell. Like especially like a, a a body part. Like back in you know your your day, they would really work a, a leg or an arm or something. Like who taught you that, or is that something that just that, that you that, knew that you had to do? Well, that that was up to the veterans that I was in the ring with, and when they would tell me to sell or come back to the locker room and and show me how to sell, uh, there was various guys. Buck Robley was was one of them. Uh, who I met early on in my career. And, uh, you know, again, Buck was another guy who did things his way. And, and if you didn't like it, well, then you weren't going to be part of it. So, but Buck would show me how to, how to sell. Um, I, I learned by watching guys, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, uh, all these guys just, just knew how to take it to the next level. And I tried to do that, but those guys are generational uh, workers, man. They, they they only come around once in a lifetime. And uh, But those are the guys I watch. Those are the guys I want to learn how to sell from. Talk a little bit about Jerry, Dr. Jerry Graham. I heard you uh, talk about him in L.A. You met him in L.A., right? My first night in Los Angeles, I walk into the Olympic Auditorium. Now, the Olympic Auditorium, I think it's a church now, but at one time, it was this sacred hollow ground. They called it the Madison Square Garden of the West Coast, but it was dead. It was on its ass when I went there in 1980. But I walk into the locker room. I go to the left, just down these long hallways. Then I walk in the first room I come to, and there's this guy sitting there, big guy. And uh, I said, oh, excuse me. He said, no, come on in. I said, uh, what's your name? Told him, he said, Dr. Jerry Graham. So who broke you in? So Paul Bosch. So then he started telling me stories about Paul. And uh, he was one of those legendary guys you heard stories about. And now here I am face to face with him. And it seemed to be nice, probably drunk off his ass, but he said, you know, a nice guy, man. I'm having a decent conversation with him. But then later on, I learned about some of the habits he had, you know, and uh, had a friend of mine in Los Angeles. who used to drive Jerry around, good doctor. And uh, he wouldn't tell you he'd have to go to the bathroom. He'd just go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, why? But, but then looking back, you realize, you know, that was, that was in the, uh, 
80s, and we're still learning about mental health even today. You know, Doc wasn't in the best mental health place. Was he always? Because I saw an interview with him where he's sitting on a couch when this other guy is just wedged into this couch with him. Was he always that big like that? I think so, yeah. Wow. He was that big when I saw him. Yeah. Damn. So you he had so there was there were underlying issues that people didn't know about. I, look, I think there were underlying issues with a lot of guys back then, especially. It was a the culture was it, it really was a drug, sex, rock and roll culture, and that was uh, uh, one of my favorite shirts. Is I may be old, but I got to see all the cool bands. <laughs> you know, they don't do concerts like they used to anymore. They don't do wrestling like they used to. They don't do anything like they used to anymore because we have to catch up with today's times and, and what's going on today. But back then, there was an element of, I don't want to say danger, but at the same time, uh, it was this element of these guys are different than your normal bears. They're, they're not your average normal normal people. And I wanted to live on that fringe. I wanted to be there with people who were who knew something everybody else didn't, who did things everybody else couldn't do or shouldn't do and uh, or wouldn't do. And I just, I, I figured life is to live. You know, it's not, not going out with the, the famous Hunter Thompson quote, you know, don't go out in a nice casket or a nice pristine body. No, man, go out with oil smoking, worn out, worn out body, man. Like what a, what a hell of a ride. I tried everything. I did everything, man. And I, a couple of things I forgot to taste, but I'll taste it later on in my next life. That, that's really, Yeah. Another uh, Dr. Hunter, Hunter Thompson quote, I hate to advocate drugs and uh, drugs and alcohol, but they've always worked for me. They worked for me, yeah, exactly. And that was how a lot of guys thought back then. And, you know, as we found out, there are addictive things that can harm us. And uh, some of the stuff they said wouldn't harm us does, did, will, can, has. But, you know, for the times... And again, I think the 70s, man, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, the the world was was just so scattered and uh, everybody was uh, trying to find a place. I remember my brothers, you know, going to Vietnam and then coming back. I didn't know I was younger than them, but they they had the attitude that um, they went and just saw a war. So they're going to come back and they're going to enjoy their life. So, and they did. And that, and that's what I wanted to do, man. I wanted to enjoy life. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And once I found out, you know, the, the mystery was, okay, I know it's a work, but how do you, how do you do it? What's, what's the uh, nuances to all this stuff? Even in modern wrestling, when you have the undertaker, or Kane and these grand entrances. There were no grand entrances like that back then. Uh, but for this day and age, you still had people who would be scared of the undertaker or be scared of Kane or be scared of uh, Papa Shango or something. I mean, then as an adult, you're looking at this going, really? But I'm looking at it going, whoa, these guys took it to the extreme. Aerosmith is still rocking after I don't know how many years, man. Mick Jagger's 80 years old. I was just listening to this on Rogan. 80 years old, and he carries 
workout equipment wherever he goes for his <laughs> shows and stuff like this. He stays young. He stays relevant. You know, at 80 years old, you ever seen anybody can work like Mick Jagger and or Steven Tyler? Huh? They're these people who who aren't like everybody else. And they breathe rarefied air. I don't want to be that dramatic, but but they're different than us. They get out there and perform at, a, at the next level. And in wrestling, when you have guys like Undertaker or Kane, they lived that gimmick. They are that gimmick. They, they, they know they're human. They know they're not really, you know, a magical wizard who can make things happen. But, but they are magical people who make things happen. They make you feel things, and they make you go, oh, my God, the commitment they have to have to pull this off to where people will pay to come see a character like The Undertaker. I mean, he didn't have a tattoo on him until he got to WWE and became The Undertaker, but he evolved into that character, and he wasn't playing a part. He is The Undertaker to this day. Yeah. Do you think, like, talking about things like this hurt the business at all, like breaking kayfabe? No, I really don't because, uh, again, um, we can talk all day long about, and I, I love rock and roll, but the difference between a guy like, David Lee Roth and Steven Tyler. Okay, Steven Tyler can actually sing. And and I love Dave because I love his attitude, man. I love the attitude. It's He knows the quotes. He knows sound bites. He knows everything people want to hear, people want to see. At least he did. Now that he's close to 70 years old, he's, he's kind of losing it too. But you, you kind of know the secrets behind rock and roll too. The days of Jim Morrison and, and uh, Janice Joplin and guys like that, people like that who went to excess and died, you know, well, what was the mystery behind them? What made them so smart or what made them so talented and entertaining? Jim Morrison was supposed to this really smart guy. I don't know. I just know I like hearing their songs. I just know I like watching them on stage. And, I think that's the way it is now. People understand you can't hit somebody five times in a row because we see MMA, we see UFC. It's okay. People know it's 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 choreographed and it's manipulated and it's predetermined. But what they fail to realize is the bumps are real. Sometimes accidents do happen. You know, Darren Drozov was crippled you know, paraplegic the rest of his life after one small accident. And I broke my leg twice, my, my ankle twice, my collarbone twice. You forget to realize, yes, it's it's manipulated and it's predetermined. But what makes people invest? It's the characters. It's the persona. It's the people that, that, that they want to watch. What made 70,000 people go, yes, 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 when Daniel Bryan beat Hunter. Uh, it's because they were invested in Daniel Bryan. Nothing spectacular about him, about his looks or anything else, but his the way he does this choreographed, worked, manipulated sport or business, whatever you want to call it, I think that's what gets people into it. They're into the personas and into the characters. And I don't think talking about it, diminishes that anymore. I just think, especially when you have people like you guys 
who understand what it is and, and appreciate it to the point where you do want to talk about it and see who's behind the, the mask or who's behind the persona. I, I always liked the people who were different. I always liked those people who came out and didn't care what you thought about them. I mean, well, I can't say that because they cared. You don't want anybody being different about you, but if they, if you loved them, they, that was okay. If you hated them, that was okay too. As long as there was, there was some kind of side you had to pick no middle ground. So I don't think it hurts. I think it helps sometimes because it gets some people even more into the character. Yeah. It gets people talking about it too. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite character of all time that they had out in wrestling? Uh, you know, my favorite character, I think, my favorite wrestlers, let me say this first, were, were the Funks. You know, you had Dory Funk Sr., Dory Jr., and Terry. But my favorite character, I think, that the one that really um, sold everybody, no matter if you loved it, hated it, thought it was hokey, thought it was phony, whatever, was The Undertaker. Because he had such a great entrance. He looked the part. And he was larger than life. You know, uh, you could stand next to him, and he's huge. And when he's the Undertaker in character, he didn't break. He didn't break at all. And when he's the Undertaker out of character, what I mean is away from the ring, and you met him out, uh, out on the street or, or somewhere in public, he knew how to be that guy. He didn't insult your intelligence, but he knew how to be – the outlaw. He knew how to be the easy rider. He knew how to be that guy that uh, you knew shit went down. He was going to handle it, and and you would you didn't want any shit with the Undertaker. You know what I mean? Some people you go up to him, pick a fight with. You don't want to pick a fight with him because there's a there's a chance he'll break your neck. So I love The Undertaker, though. I really do. I thought that was one of the greatest personas, characters. I, I, I like the Million Dollar Man character, too. I'm sure Teddy did, too, because he got to carry a lot of money around and, <laughs> and spread it, spread it everywhere he went. But he was perfect for that role. He was, he was, he knew how to adapt to it and, and get into it. Going back to underlying issues, I've heard you say over the years, uh, or over interviews that you were socially awkward coming up in the business. That is not the case now. I mean, h- how did you overcome that? Or like, what, what did you well, mean when you said that? Well, I, I was socially awkward my whole life because I liked wrestling and nobody else did where I was at, you know, around uh, my school, you know, all that fake stuff. Um, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where I think performers as a whole and in general, are insecure and you're looking for something, you know, and, and uh, the travel, I never minded backstage. I never minded, but really what I was really waiting for was that that time in the ring. And that's what you live for. But uh, I just being socially awkward, you know, I, like I said, I like, I like some weird stuff. I guess David Lee Roth was my, my favorite uh, performer at one time. Knowing he couldn't sing, but just watching his stagecraft, watching the showmanship, and and that's what really got me. And just just knowing that you have to have that confidence, it's it's something that that I was lacking for the longest time until I stopped wrestling, and then I realized I listened to to how people were talked about on the other side of the table. Now now I'm listening to how talent is thought of by the power brokers, 
you know, what they think of this guy, what they think of that guy, and why is this guy on the outs right now? Well, then I realized, you know, guys like Bret Hart really mean it when they say the best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. He really means it. And that's great. I just I just never felt that way yeah, about me. I mean, Brett, Brett's one of the greatest, I think, of uh, I think he's ever been around. I don't know if he's the greatest or will ever be all, only the greatest. There's a lot of people after him. But the social awkwardness just comes from, um, I think, people telling you all your life, you can't do it, you won't do it. And uh, then I heard that one person say, there's three kinds of people in the world, those who try and they don't make it, they say, at least I tried. And those who give you their best shot, and when they don't make it, at least they give you the best shot. And those who say, whatever it takes. And then I had to learn, oh, whatever it takes. Well, that means if I have to miss this in order to accomplish my goal, that's what I have to do. I have to miss this. You know, so I may be missing out on, on an opportunity to, to integrate myself with people and, and get to know people better. Nope. I've got to go to the gym or I've got to go over here. I got to make a town. So that was what I meant by socially awkward. When I'm in a dressing room or at a show, uh, I've, I've learned how to interact. I've learned how to talk. I've learned how to have a better conversation and uh, be a little more myself. Let's get into the, the broken ankle. The So that's what started the doctor gimmick, right? The Yeah. Yeah. I broke my ankle in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I had to finish the match, and I went downstairs and kept my boot on for a minute. And I, when I finally took it off, it was hurting more than usual. So uh, when we stopped, you know, I got a six-pack and a whatever else anybody else had in the car. Uh, and and I was living with, you know, three other guys, uh, Taurus Bulba, Juan Reynosa, Billy Travis, and Wendell Cooley. So there's four of us living in this day's end. And we've got a one bedroom with two beds, got a couch, kind of like a sweet deal. And one of us slept on the floor or slept on the couch, and then two slept in the bed, and we rotate. So I asked the guys if I could sleep on the couch that night because my ankle was killing me. Anyway, Sherry Martell came by, and uh, I worked a week on a broken ankle. My, my ankle went I mean, it turned black, man. I went from Tuesday to Tuesday. I just kept taping it up, taping it up, taking pain pills. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what that's what we did. Take it, take what I could take. Go to the ring, do my match, come back. Finally, on Tuesday, the next Tuesday, Bill Dundee came in and says, "Man, you might want to get that checked." I mean, how stupid do you have to be? My foot's black. It's starting to turn black up my shin, and. uh Sherry came in and says, yeah, I'm taking you to the hospital tomorrow. Her roommate was a was a nurse. So she took me to the hospital. Sure as hell, it was broke. Put me in a cast right there. So back then, you didn't get paid if you didn't actually work. No guarantee contracts. So Sherry and Tina brought me over to their apartment. Let me stay there. And Tina gave me a bunch of uh, doctor scrubs to, to wear, you know, to for the cast to get in and out real easy. So uh, finally, after about a week at their place, I said, I can't have these guys support me either. So my dad came to Tennessee to get me with a buddy of mine to drive my car back. About six weeks later, Brett Armstrong calls me and asks me if I'd like to come to Pensacola. And uh, sure. 
pet the beach. Beautiful women. You kidding? Yeah. So anyway, I went to Pensacola. Uh, I'm in that junior heavyweight spot. And Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden are now working with the Rich Cousins, Tommy and Johnny Rich. And they have a friend of theirs who've been traveling with them and partying and having a good time. And he's talking about he wants to be in the wrestling business. So they put him on TV as their manager, uh, Dr. Love. And they beat the hell out of the rich boys and they taped their boots to the, to the bottom rope. And they go to the interview stand on, on stage, tell Gordon Soli, nothing's going to happen to our pretty faces. We got our cut man here with us, Dr. Love. Dr. Love's face is right there on TV for all to see. The next week, the, the angle airs and it's great. But the next day, like airs on a Sunday or a Saturday, next, the next day Sunday, Robert gets a call from the FBI, and they're looking for Dr. Love. He's on the top 10 most wanted in, in, uh, in the country for various reasons. And uh, so Robert told him, oh, we don't know who he is. He's just one of those boys who hang around and we use once in a while. So uh, that was that. And I'm riding with Jimmy and Robert, and I'm happy to wear a pair of my scrubs. And Robert is lamenting the fact that he had to scan the angle and uh, wondering what he's going to do. And we get out of 7-Eleven to grab something to drink. And when he sees my pants, he goes, well, by God, boy, you could be our doctor. We're going to make you Dr. Tom. So I was made a doctor right in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven in uh, so, Panama City. Yeah. So how did the how did the Doctor of Desire come about then? That was a Jim Cornette invention. You know, sweet Stan Lane. You have to have something else. Lover boy Dennis, beautiful Bobby, Doctor of Desire. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so we're jumping all over the place here. Talk about working in Japan. How does that work? Uh, going back to, you know, talking about the matches and the finishes and stuff, you're working with guys that don't even speak English. Right. Well, that's that's where you learned, and that's when I learned, um, wrestling by feel. A lot of time, and I had a match. I've had a couple of matches now uh, over the years where you didn't have to say a word. It was all body language, and you felt it. And some of those guys spoke English. Some of them didn't. but some of the guys you just knew, and they knew too. If you make a move, they go with it. They made a move, you went with it, and it's it's all feel and body language. Um, William Regal and I had a match in Georgia. The only time I ever worked with Regal was in uh, developmental in, in the ring. It never never in front of anybody. We just started. We were in the ring. We had been teaching, and he and I just looked at each other and started circling, and uh, we locked up. I went back to the ropes. Regal broke. Then we locked up. We just had a match. I went for something. If he didn't want to go for it, he'd block it. He'd go for something else. I'd block it. You know, so it's 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 a feel thing that comes with experience. You just there's certain things you know. If I'm gonna go down and leg dive you, I worked a, a six-man tag uh against Liger and somebody else. And anyway, we hadn't talked about anything, we just knew the finish. I knew Liger knew English, but I didn't, we didn't have to speak. I just went down and leg tripped him. He kicked me off. I did it two more times and he kicked me off. He knew the routine. There's things you just instinctively know and understand once you've been in the business for a while. And uh, so that's that's how that worked. I mean, a lot of guys didn't speak English. You just knew you had to go out there and 
if there was an opening, take it. You know, they were going to do the same thing. That's, was it intimidating? Like, because you were you were over there when you were pretty young, right? When oh, I was over there. Young. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very intimidating at first. You know, I was I've been in wrestling about a year and went to Japan, but um, I was willing to learn, and I was accepting the fact that not everything is going to be called in the back, and and I, I kind of learned that in LA a little bit, but uh, yeah. At first, it can be very intimidating because you're not really sure about these guys. Like when Hogan was on, when Hogan was just on Rogan, he talked about the who was it Matsui Matsui Matsuda. Matsuda that broke his leg. Like, did yes. you ever see anything like that? Those, those guys like taking advantage I, of he, new guys. Yeah, actually, one Saturday morning in Atlanta TV, Buzz Sawyer had been at the Crystal Palace all night. All night came straight from Crystal Palace to TV. Crystal Palace was a bar in Atlanta uh, after hours. And uh, young kid, amateur wrestler Ole Anderson found and wanted Buzz to put him through the paces. And Buzz, stinking drunk, you know, hadn't had probably hadn't showered in three days either. So he's just just grungy and nasty and being Buzz. And I love Buzz, but Buzz was. Could be a nasty, nasty guy. I mean, if you didn't like you, you were in trouble. But uh, we got along great. But I saw him take this kid and actually forearm him in the nose, rub his face in the mouth. For this is an amateur wrestler, uh, and Buzz amateur wrestler too. But Buzz is being extra rough with him and extra tough with him. The kid didn't know what to do. He was scared shitless. But I, I did see that. Uh, never saw anybody. Yeah, never saw anybody break a leg or anything. But. That's what they did back then to discourage you. Sheik was trying to discourage me. Didn't break my leg, thank God, but he did stretch me. Well, he, he ran, was trying to, There was another guy that started with you in the Sheik, right? And he, he, a he football player. After, yeah, he, no. he said he didn't come back after what a couple weeks. Two right? weeks, yeah, after <laughs> two weeks. He said, "Nah, this isn't what I thought it was." <laughs> but I, I, I knew, I knew they were trying to like dampen my spirits, and they weren't going to do it, man. This is what I wanted to do. Uh, this is an interesting story. Talk about working in Memphis when uh, the Andy Kaufman, when Andy Kaufman came in to work with uh, Jerry Lawler. You were back. You were back in the locker rooms for a lot of that stuff, right? You were there. Yeah, but Lawler, but Kaufman was uh, just like one of the boys, and and it was cool to watch because he was very quiet, very uh, uh, didn't talk like a big shot or anything like that. I think he was as enamored with wrestling, like we were enamored with him because it, I don't know about enamored, but just curious about what he was doing as well, because Andy wasn't a comedian. He was a stand-up artist or a, uh, what's the word? Uh, live improv. Did a lot of improv and it wasn't really, you know, his, his whole act at one time consisted of eating a bowl of ice cream. You know what I mean? I love stuff like that. Or reading a book to to an audience from the first page, The Great Gatsby, to an audience. <laughs> or taking them out for milk and cookies after the show. You know, stuff like that. Those are the kind of people that intrigue me because they're, they're thinking outside the box. And I wish I could be that creative. But Andy not only was creative, he parlayed it into a career. He could do Elvis. He could sing. He could dance. He could do all this stuff. 
but he wanted to be in wrestling. He loved the wrestling business, and you could tell. Uh, but yeah, I was around for, for a lot of that stuff. But they like they never they never told anybody about that stuff. Oh, right? oh a lot of times they they kayfabe the boys too, and all the boys too. Yeah, you're right, and that was that was what that Memphis was uh, notorious for doing stuff like that. Memphis was notorious for kayfabe and everybody. The only people who needed to know were the only people who knew. And uh, Jerry Lawler, Jerry Jarrett kept it real close to the vest. I just, I remember seeing, uh, I think the territory episode on vice where Jerry Jarrett says, Bill Watts called him to, to tell him how proud he was of both he and Lawler for putting Andy Kaufman in his place. (laughs) Paul Bosch called Lawler and says, you know, hey, I want to tell you how proud I am. I want to book you on our, on our shows. And Lawler told me himself, he says, all these guys are calling me, and we can't smarten them up because if we do, it's like, oh, my God. They, you know, they fell for it. But they, were, they weren't they were smart. They thought it was all a, a shoot. And this was that Lawler really hurt Kaufman. So, was it, Andy was already on Taxi and stuff by then, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the the Letterman thing, like that was all that was all planned, like a, a couple days before too. The slap, right? Like that was right, right. And and I asked Lawler's the couple times I've had to, to be with Jerry Lawler and ask him some of these questions that really intrigued me. I asked him about that. He said the, the same thing he's been repeating over the years that Andy brought it up. What if this? What if we did this? And Lawler said, "Hey, man, I can't get arrested. They might haul my ass to jail." And he says, "Yeah, but wouldn't that be cool?" And then Lawler, Lawler thought about it, and obviously at the last second, you know, just did it. And uh, nobody knew. Nobody knew, and, and nobody was going to know. That's awesome. Like, they didn't even smarten Letterman up or nothing like it. No, 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 no. I mean, they, they knew something like that happened because they wanted to come out and sing a song, I think. And uh, then if, if they did that, it would have been over. But they got much sure. more out of it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, yeah, it really was. Um, so back then it wasn't cool. like now that now the uh, it's called the independent wrestling scene, like anything that not, that's not on major television. But back then you said it was called outlaw wrestling. Outlaws, they were called outlaws, not independents, but outlaws. It was because if you weren't uh, part of the NWA, and the NWA back then was the governing body, pretty much of wrestling. Uh, you had AWA in Minneapolis and. Uh, Midwest, they had WWWF Worldwide Wrestling Federation on the East Coast, but the rest of it mainly in the South and uh, Japan, Australia, some of the foreign places. The National Wrestling Alliance really uh, uh, was prominent. So, uh, what was the question again? Uh, I just said about how, how it was called outlaw. The oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, the outlaws, because if you didn't join, if you weren't a part of the AWA, NWA, or WWWF, you were an outlaw. You ran your own promotion, and you were blackballed usually from coming into those uh, organizations. Although they said there never was a blackball, yeah, you were blackballed. So I came up to Knoxville to hang out with you for two days at, at your training center, and the coolest part of that for me was – at the the end of the second day, when when we pulled over the, or you pulled over the little laptop and we watched uh, WrestleMania one, uh, Hulk Hogan and uh, Hulk Hogan and Mr. T versus Piper and Paul Orndorff, and we were asking right. you all kinds of questions. 
Um, so uh, one of the questions I asked you that day was, so that you guys kind of all saw the writing on the wall when WrestleMania 1 happened for the Outlaws, right? That, oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. By that time, they were called independents. So, but uh, in, in the 70s, and early 80s, in the 70s, it was called Outlaws. In the early 80s, I think it's when they turned independence because Bruiser Brody was doing independence and some of the other guys uh, started doing some independent work. And they instead of calling them Outlaws, although Brody was the biggest outlaw of them all, um, they started calling them independence. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was something else. So when did you first go to the WWF back then? When, when was the first year that you were there? And how did that, how did it, how did that all come about? Because you were working the independent scene, right? For well, I was working Smoky Mountain. Smoky Mountain. Yeah, we were we were part of the uh, I don't think we were part of the NWA, but it was the independent scene here in Knoxville, the regional. Um, we went to WWF in 90, 93. I think that that came about. We went to WCW first. We did an invasion angle in WCW uh, when Bill Watts had uh, taken over as the booker, was in charge. Then he got fired, and we got a call from uh, up north, and they asked if we'd like to come in for SummerSlam, work a match with Steiners. But I knew what they were looking for. They were looking for Jim Cornette. They wanted Jim Cornette to come in and help them. Uh, they were going through the trial, and a lot of things were happening, and they were looking for people up to, to get in place. So in case Vince went away and did some time, they would have some people who uh, at least knew what they were doing. So they had Jerry Jarrett up there. They were looking to get Jim in, in the office, and they finally did. But he knew they knew if they, if they wanted Jim, he was going to bring his team with him. It's just the kind of guy he is. So we got the match with Steiners in 93, SummerSlam 93, I believe it was. That was so, the first then, time. so how are you approached then in 96 to train, start training guys? Well, what happened, uh, there's a lot of things that happened. But uh, what really happened was WCW had their training center. They had the... Um, was it called the power plant? Thank you. It's called the power plant. And uh, they didn't have anything. WWF didn't have anything at that time. So I had trained some guys in Texas or went and worked out with some guys in Texas. And Bruce happened to be with me. So he mentioned events that uh, uh, I might be a good trainer. Because it was 96, and I was 36 years old. And by that time, you know, I was just uh, – I beat up. My neck is bad. My my ankle, everything was, was starting to add up. So I got the opportunity uh, when things were winding down. You know, we, we did the body donos. We did the heavenly bodies. And now it's like, what's next? Well, how about, what, what do you think about doing something behind the scenes? And I thought, that's great. Give me a little more security. Give me something different. Something I'd never done before. So, uh that's how that came about. And then we started with three guys, one named Akam Albrecht. He was as Brockus, uh, Mark Henry, world's strongest man, and of course, The Rock. So those were the first three that we had in there. And then we went uh, a little farther. Dory Funk Jr. came on board. We did the Funkin' Dojo, I think, for about six months. And then that ran its course. 
And then we kept the developmental system. And Jim Cornette was there, and he was desperately wanting to get back to Louisville, Kentucky. He hated Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut. And uh, so he said, what if we do this? What if we have developmental system in Louisville and Cincinnati? They spent half the time in Louisville, half the time in Cincinnati. And that's kind of what, what happened. But I stayed in Stanford and was in talent relations for all those years. Did you like doing that? Yeah, I did. I did for, for the longest time. And uh, the only thing that that I could say is, is it is it's like running a war, and you have Washington, and then you have the war. The people in Washington are trying to run the war from afar instead of getting a close up look at what's going down on the ground here. And when we were in Florida or Georgia, you know, we would tell them what's going on, but uh, then they would tell us what they want have going on and it didn't mesh and they couldn't understand why there were issues and that was the only thing sometimes it was miscommunication between the office and us and sometimes they just didn't seem to care have you had have you ever worked outside of professional wrestling have you ever had any other jobs like you ever a roofer or anything no not really not really man so yeah it's always been wrestling that's awesome yeah it really is yeah. Uh, you also ended up training, uh, had a hand in training Vince, too, for some of the stuff that he did, right? Yes. Vince, <laughs> what was that uh, like? It was, it was actually kind of cool because Vince can be a really cool guy. He really can. He has to be Vince at, at, at the office and at work. But when you get him one-on-one, he can be very congenial. He can be very charming. And uh, uh, I got along great with Vince. Did he, did he take to it pretty good? I mean. No. <laughs> no man he was he, he's not very athletic you know he, he can lift weights it looks great but no he, he was very uh all over the place but but he's vince he doesn't have to be great right he's already great he's vince I, I mean, gonna, yeah yeah he wasn't gonna learn how to do a, wasn't gonna learn how to do a, a, a correct hammer lock and that's not what it's about yeah, how many other guys can come into the ring blow both of their hamstrings and still cut a promo sitting down right Right, but you know, he just he just was not um, the most athletic guy in the world. But 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 he didn't have to be. He just had to do his Mister McMahon stuff, and that was it. Or right, have you heard any of the stories, or maybe you've been there for like some of the? I've heard this. I can't remember where, but that like at bars after the shows, sometimes Vince would get like hammered and. Asked to take some of the guy's finishers? Is that Well, that, true? that was at one time, yeah, but I wasn't there for that. But I have been in the bar with Vince before. He doesn't – no, he never asked to take a finisher when I was there. But <laughs> uh, but I have heard that, and, and I, could see, I could see that happening. I really could. I could see that happening. And the, the circumstances being what they were, I could definitely uh, uh, understand why they happened. Let's talk about your uh, your training school a little bit, the JPWA. Um, I've heard you say in interviews that there's no right or wrong way; it's professional wrestling. So how did how did you come up with your cur- cur- curriculum? Uh the curriculum. Well, uh, that that again that goes back to uh, the office wanting something, not knowing really what they were looking for. They said we need a curriculum, a one year curriculum. Uh, from day one to the end of the year. 
And I said, that's not how it works, guys. You don't, you can't have a, uh, a set plan because not everybody's going to learn at the same pace. Not everybody's going to learn. Like I can't say today we're going to go over this hammer lock and we're going to go over reversals. And then we're going to go to the headlock. It doesn't work like that. Some days you're feeling better about working another body part or working on selling or working on um, strikes or kicks or punches. If we're not feeling that, you need to know when to move on to something else. Uh, you know, we train four hours a night, but there you can there's so there is such a thing as, as overkill and burnout. So you got to know how to how to adjust and uh, make people their best at their best when 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 the time is right and. Um, that that's how the curriculum came about. I, I worked on that, worked on that. And then I thought, Oh my God, I got it down. I've got a year where we do this, 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 and this, and it'll work out. I've got it right down to a year. And as soon as I had it ready to go, they fired me. So I don't think they were, honestly, God, I can say this now because I really don't care. I don't think they were looking for a curriculum. They were just looking for a reason. So that's okay. But but it is a curriculum. It's something you can everybody can use, and uh, uh, at, at least it's a guide to go by. It's not you don't have to follow it verbatim, word for word. Just pick up something, look at it, see if you can do it, uh, and try it. So, like when I started training in 1999, and uh, the guys that trained me, they they trained up uh, with Vern Gagne up in Minnesota. Um, we did the squats and you know, all that kind of stuff like that. When, when I came to your school, uh, those two days, you don't have the guys doing that. Uh, right. is there a reason? Like, what's the reason for that? Yeah. We're there for wrestling. Uh, if you want to get in shape not, and we look when you, yeah, the two days you were there, we, we didn't, we did the man in the middle or no, I don't think uh, you did. Did. Wednesday was promos. And then Thursday you guys, uh, worked, uh, matches and, and, Okay, yeah, because we've got a graduation coming up. But but I think when you're doing wrestling, you need to do wrestling drills. The squats, the push-ups, they're all great. Regal still does them to this day. Not demeaning or, or saying they're not great. They are good. And it's just not the way I do things. Um, you should be in shape when you get there. I think rolling, doing the bumps, doing the break falls, um, that's good to get you warmed up. Then we're going to go into some wrestling spots, the five, five, five in the uh, spot where you shoot the guy off, hold on to his hand, hold on to his arm five times and he reverses and you shoot him off. You drop down, you lead frog five times and you take him to the corner shoot him off up and over five times. Then you do some false finishes or you do some finishes and uh, that will get you in shape as well as squats and push-ups and things like that. But I, I just prefer doing wrestling things as opposed to, all right, now we're going to do a 1,000 squats. Nothing wrong with that. Just I while we're there, we're going to do wrestling stuff. Yeah, people come to your school to learn wrestling. I mean, I didn't – when I came there, I mean, I, you always hear about Dr. Tom Pritchard being, you know, the premier – wrestling coach in america but like i didn't realize how big of a destination your school is like there's four guys right now at this graduating class from or four four people from the uk right yeah one, one guy from france yeah a couple other guys from new york 
New York. Uh, yeah, we have we have one person, Morristown, Tennessee here, but the rest are, uh, are actually person from Memphis, one from Knoxville, the rest are from New York, uh, France, and uh, England. Yeah. Um, so you yell, I mean, you didn't do it when I was there, but I've heard you say that you yell and scream at guys, uh, when you're training. Uh, and that's the way that I was brought up too, man. Like bad crew, Jake and Paul, they, they yelled and screamed and I was a roofer all my life. I mean, that's my, that's how I was taught to roof. The guy was screaming and yelling at me the whole time. Um, are there ever any guys or girls who have either stopped coming or said like, why, why are you yelling at me in today's culture? You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, today's culture, and when I yell and, and scream, it's um, I try to do it in a way that um, let me let me try to explain it this way. I tell everybody when I start, it's a work. Wrestling's a work, but when I yell and scream, I'm working too. I'm just that's the way I get my point across. I'm not. I don't hate you. I don't dislike you. But when I yell and scream, I've got to do it to make a point. And, yes, I have had people stop coming. I've had had people cry on me. I have had people. So, But but that's what I tell them. So I get it. I understand. And I want you to have fun. But this is tough. And I'm a pussycat compared to others. You know, we don't do a 1,000 squats a night. We don't do a 1,000 push-ups a night. The closest we come to doing that is uh, – We'll do 10 sit-ups and 10 push-ups in the middle of this drill called the Satans. I don't know if we did those when you were there or not. I don't think we did. It's called Satans where you you hit the rope 10 times, drop down, give me 10 push-ups, 10 10 sit-ups. You go to the corner 10 times, and the other guy does it 10. It's it's a hell of an exercise. But uh, I have had a couple people stop coming, and they don't realize it's not – I'm not yelling at you because I'm – trying to berate you i'm yelling at you because that's how i have to explain it and it's it's the performer coming out it's the it's the attitude coming out and uh but after that it's done i don't know again i don't hate you for it I just that's the way i gotta explain it. i feel the same way man like when i was when i was roofing um i when i would explain things when I would explain stuff to guys, I would be yelling and screaming at them. And then my boss would take me aside and he's like, Hey, you can't talk to these guys like that. I was like, well, right. that's how you taught me. I don't know any other way. Right, right, right. Pretty much. And, and, you know, I have talked to people and told them, look, man, don't take it personal. If you take this stuff personally, uh, then you're going to hate it. It's not going to be cool, but you got to understand there's going to come a little bit of a trial and tribulations with this. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I just have a couple other, uh, small questions here. Um, any opinion on backyard wrestling? Not a big fan, but I would have done it if I was a kid. I mean, if I had backyard, but the the problem I have with backyard wrestling is a lot of them do the light tubes. A lot of them go out and do the, the, the crazy stuff. Um, that don't, again, I'm not saying I wouldn't have done it as a kid because I wanted it that bad. I understand how the passion is. At the same time, these guys are doing it without any really uh, knowledge about what they're doing, and they could get hurt really, really bad. That's the only reason. Don't blame anybody for wanting to go out and wrestle and and uh, have a good time and have fun. But um, I just I'm not a fan because too many people can wind up getting hurt really bad. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I'm not going to mention his name. There's a guy in Pennsylvania that was a backyard wrestler who then he now has his own uh, training school and he's training guys. And it's like, yeah. I, 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 after I was at your school, I went to their school just cause it was a ring, you know, to get into. And, uh, I was, I asked the one kid that was there, I said, how long have you been training for? He said, Oh, just a little over a year. It's like, yeah. Have you had any matches yet? No. It's like, right. Right. Just, I mean, they're just getting, basically taking these guys money you know their money well yeah yeah and that's the other thing you know it's, it's like you're not going to make any money off the backyard stuff right um do you think that the weekly independent territory shows uh could ever come back i i don't uh the place that, that we're at now southern pride championship wrestling runs every two weeks um and i i think they're they're let me let me retract uh, there is a marketplace for a local wrestling show. If you have loyal fans who come all the time, and they get a great show. It's live entertainment. I love watching stand-up comedy. I love watching live entertainment. I really do. Um, but to do it every week, you know, to get people to come out every single week, that that's a bit of a chore these days, I think, because you have wrestling on TV every night of the week. What is going to get people to come out and pay 15 bucks or even $10 to sit there in a sweat box? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love where we're at, but it's a sweat box and, or it's, or it's a freezer in the wintertime, you know, um, there's gotta be an appeal there. And I don't know if there's that much appeal. You know, I think you, I watched some of the Hogan on Rogan as well. And Hogan said something to me that made made perfect sense. He said, uh, you know, when he got in, everybody was so big. Now the guys are smaller and more dynamic and more athletic. Well, that's going to still take a toll on their body. And um, to do that every week, I mean, that that's that's a lot. And I don't know if, if uh, I don't know if it can be sustained. Yeah, I mean, especially some of the stuff that they're doing, the the. I mean, it's high spot after high spot after high spot. Right, and nobody's selling. So that's where it kind of gets lost in translation. Nobody's really selling and, and letting it happen. Yeah. Tell uh, – so we were talking about this when I was at the at the school in Knoxville. Um, I had – I started watching – I hadn't watched professional wrestling in at least 20 years, and then AEW started the first all-in. Uh, I think it was 2018 or 2019, and I was like, wow, it's like – it was, you know, all those high spots I hadn't seen in 20 years. And I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Right. Um, but tell Ray uh, the elephant, the elephant uh, joke. The- well, it's just not a joke. If, if you come, <laughs> can, can we cuss on this? Oh, yeah. Okay. So if, if you come home uh, today and you see two elephants out in front of your house, fucking, you're going to go inside and tell your wife or tell your husband or whatever it is. It's hey, there's two elephants out there fucking. Holy shit, holy shit. If you come home the next day and those two elephants are still out there fucking, you go on and tell your friend or whoever, hey, those two elephants are still out there fucking. By the third day, if they're still out there, it's like, oh, there's those fucking elephants. It loses the effect. You know what I mean? You see it once, holy shit, holy shit. You see it the next match, holy shit, holy shit. You see it the next match, what's at the concession stand? I'm not watching this shit. I've already seen it. You know what I mean? So if you don't make it special, it's not going to be special. 
And if you, everybody's doing all these fantastic suicide dives and have a Coronas and toupees, I know her a Corona and tope, but I call them have a Coronas. Okay, so if you see all this stuff, it kind of desensitizes you, and, and you're wanting more and more and more. Not that that's bad. It's just you've got to come up with all this stuff. And uh, the basics and fundamentals never go out of style. I truly believe that. You're still going to have to lock up. You're still going to have to learn how to walk in the ring. You're still going to have to do something out of a simple headlock. So if, if you don't have a foundation, you're going to crumble real, real fast. You know, if you can do high spot, high spot, high spot, but you get lost and you don't know how to get back to where you need to be, then you're screwed. The match is done. But that's why I say if you've um, planned out your match A, B, C, D, E, and something happens at C, you don't know how to get to E without going through D and E. But you have to learn how to – if something screws up, you need to know how to, how to transition into what's next. And that's, that's what we try to teach at JPWA. Uh, but, yeah, the, you see two elephants fucking for four days in a row – or three days in a row, eventually it's going to wear, wear off the, the shine or the surprise or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, I mean, I still, I mean, I'm still going to watch it just because I'm so invested in it now. I've been right. watching since day one, but it does like it, it gets, you know, so it's just like, okay, there's a great move, but why isn't the guy selling it? He's just getting right back up from a giant move that, you know, 15 years ago, if somebody, if somebody would have done that, they, the match would be over. But that's what we're edu- yeah, that's what we're educating the people today. It, it's it's not 15 years ago. It's 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 now we're educating the people and like boom, we can do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this, and that's what they're coming to expect. So it'll just take re-educating the people again to to get it back uh, to any semblance of selling or things like that. Speaking of AEW, uh, I recently watched American Nightmare, the, the Cody Rhodes story. Yeah, which was what. It was really good. I just thought it was odd the timing that they made the special before they gave him a the title. It ended with him still trying to get the the championship belt, which I thought was kind of weird. Why they wouldn't just wait? Well, I, I, yeah, I think I think the the money is in the chase and the the drama is in the chase, and they brought Cody back with all the. Uh, people, the, one thing WWE is very well aware of, people are reading the internet and they get on there and they, they want to know what's in. So, so they slyly put it together and instead of giving everybody what you want right away, they let him chase it for a while. And I think there's a next story to that after this. And he finally got, Cody finally got his win over Brock. You know, so that's done. Check that box. And right. now the next thing is to get the title. And, uh, but I, I think the drama is in the chase and the money's definitely in the chase. So that's why I think they left it there, but they had to do something while Cody's hot yeah. and he's got a great story to tell. Have you ever seen the, the match that he's talking about where dream takes the, the belt and puts it on? I can't find it on YouTube now. They must have taken it off, but, but I asked dream about that. We watched it one day and. uh, Tampa and he said he took the belt after the match and and you know it was a DQ and he said he put it on and you could see Vince Senior looking in the back at him like you son of a so Dream 
But but Dream had all the photographers take pictures of him with the belt the next day in in the, in the New York Post. It said new WWF champion, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. So you know, um, there there's a real story there, and I think there's more to it than just one episodic story of uh, you know the American Nightmare. I really do, and I think there'll be more. Is that true? The the story about Vince putting the polka dots on Dusty. Um, when he came to the WWF, was that true? Like to to try and hurt his image? I don't. I don't think so. I really don't think so. I mean, it. But only Vince knows for sure because Vince has some weird ideas. Uh, you know, like hey, let's let's put him in polka dots, see how he reacts to it. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I don't know. Um, I don't know that. I don't know, quite honestly. Because I wasn't in their clique. I wasn't in their group. But, you know, it's been said over the years, no, 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 he was just giving him a chance. But who knows? Polka dots on the American Dream. He made it work. I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he could have. I mean, he could have came out there and nothing. And he, w- he would have got over. He really would have. And, that, and that's, again, looking at, looking at a guy like the American Dream. He didn't have a body for this business. He never body guy. But he had that charisma. He had that, in, that intangible it factor, that that something about him made people want to come see him and pay uh, to come see him. So that's, that's just a testament to the talent Dusty Rhodes had. Yeah. Well, he was like more, you know, he was the common man. He was just, right. He was like everybody else. Yeah. He knew how to connect. He really did. Other than the shoot fight, your shoot fight with Tracy Smothers. Uh, have you ever been in any other uh, confrontations with other, no. other workers? No, not in the wrestling business, no. Like I said, when I was a kid, I had maybe three fights, and that was it. I just remember them because I got hit. So the, the, the whole Tracy Smothers thing, do you think he was just trying to, like, you know, portray his image, like, to, to look I, I, No, no. Tracy was a, was a different kind of guy, and I love Tracy to death. Um, but, I, but he's a country boy from Tennessee, and he's a strong – country boy from Tennessee, and I was poking the bear. I was. I was poking the bear. You know, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you, that kind of thing. And uh, he'd had enough. And one day, just it exploded. And uh, But the great thing about it was we locked up. Like, one of us didn't want to fight, and the other one's glad of it. Well, I was the one who was glad of it. I didn't want to fight either, though. You know, and, and that was just one of those unfortunate things that uh, uh, Ricky Morton stirred up. He's, he's said it before. He's already admitted it, so he knows. He stirred it up and got Tracy going, but I actually was the one who lit the fire, and Ricky just poured gas on it. And, uh, you know, Tracy wanted to kill me by the time it was over, but he didn't, thank God. How about Ricky? Speaking of Ricky Morton, man, how about that guy? Still still going at 67. Dude. I got to tell you, I, too, man. yeah, yeah, I've, I've always said Ricky Morton's one of the greatest baby faces of all time. Two top baby faces, Ricky Morton, Ricky Steamboat. And uh, even to this day, I think he's still a tremendous baby face. Yeah, really good. So yeah. since since coming to your, your place in Knoxville there, I've been watching a bunch of the NWA stuff. Um, wow. Breath of fresh air, man. Uh, I, I tell you what, if, have you seen the latest power? I did, yeah. Yeah. With, with I, that's where I started watching it. Right. You know, so it 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 
it's changing and it's going places. It really is. I mean, uh, the studio this time, it looked incredible. They've got some great camera shots. I'm excited for what's happening for the NWA. Yeah, and a couple of your students are going to be coming up on a, on a show soon, right, too, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see, we got Casey, Casey Kazano, AJ Kazano as a tag team. The Southern Gentlemen have split. Now the Kazano boys, brothers, going to form a new team. Um Gosh, who else? Oh, Silas Mason just won the uh, national championship. Dude, I saw a picture of you two together. Yeah. I, huge. You're as tall as I am because I've had a, two pictures now with you. You're as tall as I am, 6'2". That guy is fucking huge. Well, I'm on my tiptoes with you, Casey. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm not 6'2". I'll tell you that right now. But, no, he's huge, man. No, he is huge. He's he's big. And, uh, you know, he's he's he broke his leg. Uh, just a year before and didn't know what he was going to do. So he made a huge, huge comeback. And now he's a national champion. Kenzie Page, who I've been telling everybody is going to be a star, beat Camille, uh, one of the youngest NWA women's champion of all time. So, yeah, we're, we're real happy with uh, NWA and what's going on right now. Awesome. Yeah, I saw uh, Billy Corgan just posted something on Twitter, something about uh... – you know he's been he's been doing things different for the last thirty years, and he's going to continue to book the NWA as he sees fit. Yeah, and I like Billy. I really do. I think he's uh, he's an interesting guy to get to talk to. He's an interesting guy uh, when it comes to wrestling, and uh, <laughs> you don't become successful like him by making stupid mistakes. Yeah. So he he knows what he wants to do. He has a plan. And uh, I'm just – I'm very fortunate to be a part of it. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to see what they have. I really want to go – Ray is in Cleveland there. Their next pay-per-view is up in Cleveland. So yeah, I want to get up there for that. Awesome, man. That would be great. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Just a couple quick ones here. In your opinion, best commentator ever? See, that I think you have to go by arrows. You know, JR was a great commentator. I think Gordon Solu was a great commentator. Um, but I'll, I'll go, I'll go with JR on that one. All right. Best promo guy ever. Oh man. You got to go with Piper. You got to go with Hogan. You got, you got to go with, uh, uh, Ric Flair. You got to go with Dusty Rhodes. I mean, they're not just one, not just one in my opinion. All right. Dead or alive. Who is one person that you would have liked to wrestle? Terry, uh, would love to wrestle Terry Funk. I got to work with Dory. No, I never got to work with Terry. Got to work with Dory, but never got to work with Terry. Been around Terry, but uh, never got to work with him. All right, we have a couple fan questions, and then we'll see what Ray has. Uh, Dara Gaffney would like to know, what was it like training Shane McMahon? Awesome. Awesome. Just saw Shane this past week, and uh, he looks great. He's, and Shane's always been a great guy. He's been more one of the boys than than not. I mean, he 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 knows his he knows who he is. And he's confident, and uh, but always a great guy. Fantastic. Dara would also like to know who was the most difficult person to train. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's kind of hard to. Uh, pinpoint there. Occam was a little bit different and difficult sometimes. A nice guy, 
it wasn't wasn't bad. He just he didn't grasp what wrestling was. You know, he came from a uh, bodybuilding background, and he wasn't he never watched wrestling, so he didn't know what it was. And uh, I had to have his first few matches under a mask as Doctor X, so that was a little difficult for me. But um, other than that, everybody else was pretty cool. I saw a uh, match on YouTube as well, Doctor X versus uh, Rocky Maivia. Yeah, I don't know that one. That one's pretty bad match. <laughs> yeah, we we weren't we weren't in sync that night. All right, Jared Burr would like to know. Did you ever consider dancing the way that Gigolo Jimmy Del Rey did instead of just flopping your hair around? No, that was Del Rey's gimmick. I couldn't dance to save my ass. So <laughs> let Jimmy do the dance, and I'll just uh, play with my hair. How about that? That's how I thought. And Jared would also like to know, what performer had the best ring psychology growing up as a fan during your Houston wrestling days? Uh well, it would have to be the Funks. You know, Terry Funk always told a great story. Jose Lothario always told a great story. Uh, Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel had some of the greatest dramatic matches. I mean, both bleeding, and you could see the sweat fly when they hit each other. There was no denying these guys were beating the living hell out of each other. But later on, I learned, you know, they were hitting in safe places, you know, and – they, they told great stories. So, again, I can't just say one, but uh, the Funks, Valentine and Wahoo, hell, Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. told a hell of a story. Later on, I got to a new appreciation for Harley Race, especially when I got in the business. I was watching even closer when Harley was champion. Uh, he just they had, he had that innate ability. He, something inside just uh, told him what to do. So those are, those are my favorites. Nice. Um, I just have one more question for you. What do you think is missing from the wrestling business today? Well, besides a, a huge lack of respect, I think selling and just telling stories. Um, that's what I think is missing. I think if we got back to, to selling a little bit, not much, but, I mean, you can't sell an arm bar like you used to back in the day for five minutes anymore, or even two minutes. You know, you're looking at grab a hole now and, and we can't stay there forever. We can't stay there for even five seconds. So I think uh, selling and just listening and telling stories is missing. Yeah. Tom, this has been awesome, man. Ray, what, what, what do you have for Dr. Tom? Okay, so usually I ask one question and uh, you get 60 seconds to answer this one. Okay. So just, you got to pay attention. So, um, who's your favorite opponent that you wrestled and why? Brad Armstrong, because he could do everything. And uh, Brad was the ultimate baby face. And the only thing holding Brad Armstrong back was his interview ability. He was, he was living, he was in the business following some big footsteps in Bob Armstrong, his dad. But, Brad was – any of the boys will tell you, uh, the Armstrong boys will tell you, Brad was the best worker. Scotty was the best businessman. Steve Armstrong had the battling, had the, the, the Armstrong fighting spirit. Um, Bob had it all, and Brad was the best worker. So you had four of the Armstrongs. They all could work, but each had their own strengths. Brian was 
Brian Armstrong, Road Dog, was the best promo guy. You know, and uh, Scotty and Steve, they, they were probably more technical. But Brad could do it all in the ring. He just – he wasn't a great promo guy. He wasn't a great interview. So I think that's what held him back. But Brad was my favorite opponent of all time. That was another cool thing about your school is how you do – on Wednesday when I got there, you were like, oh, I should have just told you today we're just cutting promos. Um, <laughs> but that was cool for me to just sit there because we didn't – like when I went to school – in 99 we didn't do that like we learned how to wrestle um even like the in-ring like psychology stuff we didn't really learn that much you know we just learned how to wrestle the moves right. all that stuff how to bump um so like I, I when i left your school on wednesday after those guys cutting the promos i called my my buddy dustin that's really into wrestling too and i was like man if just from seeing those guys cut promos like if they don't make it to the next stuff step further it's like you know i don't know because I mean, they're they're all good. right. Well, well, I think when you were there too, I told them so. I'm not going to beg you this time. Who wants to do a promo? Because a lot of people just want to sit there and don't and, and not say anything. We've got two hours to cut promos, and one of the most important things in wrestling today is be able to communicate and tell your story. So you got to know how to cut a promo, and uh, that that's one thing I think is very very important to learn. So yeah, we we dedicate a day to cutting promos and. Uh, learning how to talk. Yeah. That, I remember like when we were doing uh, shows back in 99, 2000, they had a little small little TV deal. They would have a weekly show in like Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, and I would always like, I would always like hide, like, I don't want to do a promo because they never taught us right. how to do it. Right. Right. Well, back then, like I had, I was a little, I was socially talk about socially awkward. I was socially awkward back then. Like I, one of the reasons I guess that I stopped working is like I was so comfortable working with Jake and Paul for the EWF that I I never like went out and tried to get other bookings. Right. That's what a lot of people do. They get comfortable and, and don't want to go out their comfort zone. Yeah. So you have to do that in order to get better. You, you've got to go out and work with different people and find out what's what. Yeah. Tom, this has been awesome, man. Plug. Working. Do you still have your podcast? Do you still do your your show? Yeah, we're still doing uh, Taking Your School with Dr. Tom Pritchard on Wednesday nights after we get done with promos. I pretty much get home here and set this up and do the podcast on Wednesday nights. But uh, also, if you're interested in learning how to be a professional wrestler, you can go to jpwrestlingacademy.com. Also, you can get my book, my curriculum. I think you have a copy of that right there. Yes, sir. You can get that. That's just suggestions. Uh and ideas for pros or semi-pros or people who just want to learn about the wrestling business. So uh, we do, we're coming up on our last session of the year, October 2nd. We're getting ready to graduate this class this week. And uh, then we'll come back October 2nd. So we have moved from Knoxville, Tennessee to La Follette, Tennessee, which as you know is 45 minutes outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. So we had some issues uh, and I love where we're at now, Southern Pride Championship Wrestling, and we'll follow it. But check out the website. It'll give you all the information. That's jpwrestlingacademy.com. Awesome, man. Thanks again, Tom. Hey, thank you. It, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. You're welcome back anytime. Cool. Yep. Thank you, man. Talk to you soon. You got it.